Professor, Professor Richard Evans first asked me to give a lecture a couple of years ago, and he asked me to talk about the early Royal Society. So I decided I'd talk about 1667 and the Society's first history, which was by Thomas Spratt, who was a clergyman. The Society had only been founded seven years earlier, so it hadn't really had time to have a history, which is why I've called this more of a manifesto for the future. At the time, the new society didn't really have a very definite function. It wasn't even clear that it was going to survive for very long. I think looking back, it's quite difficult to appreciate that because we all know that the Royal Society is now a very prestigious scientific organisation. So what I'm trying to do in this lecture is to go back to 1667 when this first history was created and think a bit about how people might have regarded it at the time before they knew what was going to happen in the future. I think looking back, this particular experiment in 1667 seems particularly momentous. It's when a, the sheep, uh, the blood from a sheep, was transfused into a human being um, who was paid a pound for this experiment. I think it's quite surprising that both the sheep and the patient survived this particular experiment, although it was repeated and, um, and some of the people and uh, I actually, I don't know about the animals because nobody ever reports about the animals. But two of the people died and one of the doctors was charged with murder. But that's a, quite a retrospective view to see, feel excited by an experiment like this. I think at the time, what a lot of people felt was that 1667 was just an awful lot better than the year before. 1666 was um, a, a time... There was the plague, there was the fire, and for years people had been predicting all sorts of dire prognostications on the basis of the number 666 in the book of Revelation. 666 is the, 666 is the number of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that emerges from the sea. It says, here is wisdom, let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. And his num number is 603 score and six. So with the plague and the fire, it seemed that all these predictions were coming true. And then the British lost several uh, naval fights against the Dutch, lost several wars in succession. And But then, in 1667 the poet and playwright John Dryden emerged, and he was a sort of spin doctor who converted all of this disaster into a positive message. And he wrote a long, very successful uh, poem called Annus Mirabilis, The Year of Wonders, 1666. And his argument does seem slightly contrived. Basically, English people should be very grateful that it hadn't even been even worse, and that was God looking after us, that he hadn't made it even worse than it actually was. And this, uh, the fire in particular gave us an opportunity to rebuild and make London the greatest city in the world. So this is one of the verses which gives us a general flavour of the poem that he wrote. Methinks already from this chimic flame, he means the fire, I see a city of more precious mould, so it's going to be built of stone and brick, not of wood. Rich is the town which gave the Indies name, he means Mexico by the Indies, with silver paved and all divine with gold. So 1667 was quite an important year. Several other things happened that year as well. 
So Dryden's title, Annus Mirabilis, is often given to the year that Isaac Newton spent at Walsthorpe, where, according to the Newtonian mythology, he made the great discoveries that laid the groundwork for the whole of his future career. So on the left, you can see a 19th century, very imaginative reconstruction of how he carried out one of his experiments in optics. And so one of the key points about um, this particular diagram is that you can see that the spectrum is an oval rather than a rectangle, and that was something quite important. What, what he did in this experiment, he didn't discover that you can split light into a rainbow. Everybody knew that. What he claimed to show was that all the original, all the colours are in the original white light from the sun. They're not created by the prism that the light is passing through. And then on the right, uh, you can see a commemorative stamp of his great book, um, the Mathematical Principles of Natural Philosophy. You just read it backwards. And the book didn't appear until 1687, but uh, apparently, according to the story that he originated himself shortly before he died, this was when he sat in the garden at Woolsthorpe and conceived the theory of gravity. 1667 was also the year of publication of one of England's most famous poems, John Milton's Paradise Lost. And it was also the second edition of another very famous book, Robert Hooke's Micrographia. It had first appeared in 1665, and by some miracle, the plate survived the fire and the plague. And there was a new edition in 1667 uh, that kept uh, Samuel Pepys was so excited about it, he stayed up all night reading it. And you can see at the top, on the right, there's a cross-section of cork. And this is where Robert Hooke first used the word cell, which is now a very common word in biology. This is where it appeared. And then underneath that, uh, you can see uh, a flea. This is one of his most famous drawings that he made under the microscope. But the book that I'm going to be talking about is much less famous, uh, Spratt's History of the Royal Society. It's quite a strange book. It does include some history, although, as I said, the Royal Society was only founded in, 19, in 1660, so there were only seven years of history to include. But mainly, it's a description of how, or a claim of how marvellous the Royal Society is or was going to be in the future and why everybody should, uh, sh should pay tribute to it. It reminds me, in a sense, because it's not... A, his, really a history book. It reminds me by, of one of my famous quotations by the Danish philosopher Søren Kierkegaard. And he said, life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. And for me, as a historian, that encapsulates one of the major reasons why I personally think history is an important subject to engage in. One of my aims is to look at the past and understand from that how we've reached the present, but then the whole point of doing that is to improve the future. And Spratt used a similar sort of strategy when he was writing the book. So the first part describes uh, how, the history, how the society started, at least his, his version of how the society start, started. And then there's a long section reproducing some of the research reports, which he feels to be the most important. But then the key bit of the book, the bit that people pay most attention to, is when he boasted about how the society's activities would benefit the entire world. 
So he wrote the book to impress political patrons, and it does come, include some scientific information, but uh, mainly it's a, a rhetorical attempt to, um, to persuade people that the Royal Society is useful and it's something that everyone should contribute to and participate in it. Participate in. So one way of thinking about this Royal Society at this time is as part of larger social transformations. So 1660, when the Royal Society was founded, it was just after the Civil War. The king had come back in 1660, and there was a period which is known as the Restoration, and that was the year the Royal Society was founded. It's very convenient to be able to divide history up into different periods and give them nice, neat labels like the Restoration, the Glorious Revolution, the Enlightenment. Uh, but personally, I'm rather more in favour of having, telling histories of continuity and not paying so much emphasis to, uh, to kings and battles and changes in Parliament, but looking at greater social shifts. And one of the sort of historical theoreticians or philosophers who's been particularly influential on historians of science in the 17th and 18th century is Jürgen Habermas, whose book was translated into English, I think, in the 1980s. And the fundamental um, thesis that he puts forward is of a slow transition from a a previous way of life in which there was very stark separation between the state and the people or between the king and uh, the people that were being ruled into a more democratic system, more like the one that we have today, where there's a formation of something which he calls the public sphere, which counts as things like public opinion as expressed in newspapers, greater control over parliament, people can express their opinions in societies and theatres and... Uh, uh, media like that. And for me, the Royal Society appeared as an important part of this process of generating a public voice. So Parliament, um, in 1660, the king came back, but there were continuities with the past because the king had less power than he had done previously than his father had done previously, Charles I, because there was the legacy of the uh, puritanical regime and Parliament now exerted far more power over the monarch than it had in the past. Uh, the theatres reopened. And it was significant that these weren't take, uh, plays were no longer happening in private venues. They were happening in public spaces where people could buy tickets and they could go and watch the latest ideas being discussed. But then particularly important for the Royal Society were the coffee houses, which started in Oxford in the 1650s. And this is where gentlemen met, and it wasn't for women, is where gentlemen met and they read newspapers, they drunk coffee and chocolate, uh, they discussed politics, all sorts of plots were hatched in corners where no one could hear what was going on. Uh, this particular picture is a coffee house called Lloyd's, and that's where the Maritime Insurance Company was founded at the end of the 17th century. And the king, King Charles, was so worried about these, this, what he saw as a threat to his monopoly that he tried to have them closed down, but he was unsuccessful. And John Dryden and other members of this coffee house culture discussed the possibility of setting up new academic societies to discuss literature and art and science. 
And one of these scholarly societies, the Royal Society, first started holding, first started holding its meetings in Gresham College, which already existed. Spratt wanted to tell a story of sudden birth. He wanted to flatter the king, and so he wanted to create a sort of mythologized version of the Royal Society's history that uh, brought it into existence very suddenly out of nowhere in 1660 when the king came back. So that I'm going to tell you his version of what happened. So in 1660, um, a group of experimenters who had been confined to Oxford um, while the king was away came back to London. And particularly important was Christopher Wren, who you can see on the left. He's most famous, obviously, as the architect of Sir Paul's Cathedral. But this was before the old cathedral had burnt down. So at this stage, he wasn't an architect. Uh, he was most famous as an astronomer. He was famous for his map of the moon. He built a transparent beehive. That was his first architectural venture. He measured magnetism, carried out uh, animal experiments. And then some of the people who came with him, I've represented by pictures of what they did, because I think it gets to a point where men in wigs all look pretty similar. So on the, t on the top, uh, that uh, represents Thomas Willis, who uh, was the first person to uh, carry out dissections of the brain and show how important that is for thought. Um, and there's Robert Hooke's microscope. And this is the air pump, which is said to often called Robert Boyle's air pump. Actually, Robert Hooke played a very large part in it. And the, the, air, the idea of the air pump is that this is a glass globe, and all, all this machinery is to suck the air out of it, so you've got a near vacuum inside the glass globe. So according to Spratt, in 1660, a lot of these experimenters all came back to London. And... Wren is particularly important in this story because he became the Gresham Professor of Astronomy. So his friends came to one of these Gresham lectures, rather like this one, and they met in his rooms afterwards in the college and they decided to form a scientific club. And this is the standard story of how the Royal Society was founded. There's a long enconium to uh, um, Christopher Wren by Spratt in his book. Two years later, they received a royal charter. There's the sketch on the left, the one on the right is how it looks now. And that's the, still the society's logo, nullius in verba, which means take nothing on authority, or if you want to put it in a more vernacular way, it's don't believe everything you read in books, carry out an experiment and try for yourself and see, see what happens. But at this stage, it wasn't at all clear what the new society was going to do. There were several suggestions. So they might set up a college, they might regulate inventions, they might turn themselves into a profitable organisation. All of these possibilities were discussed, but at various stages abandoned. So they had a royal charter, but the king was not very impressed. And this is what Samuel Pepys reported, that Charles II spent an hour or two laughing at William Petty about his boat and at Gresham College in general for spending time only in weighing of air and doing nothing else since they sat. 
So the fellows decided they'd better get some publicity organised. So they made uh, Thomas Spratt, he was then a young clergyman, and he later became the Bishop of Rochester, and they elected him as his fellows, he was then in his late 20s, and they told him to get going on writing, writing a history of the Royal Society that would raise some publicity. And there were various delays because it had to go through committees, and you know how that holds everything back. And then there was the plague and the fire, but eventually, in 1667, um, he got... It got it published. And he, it was rather like John Dryden. In it, he promises a new and glorious future for England. So this is the book I'm going to be talking about. And I've divided the talk into two parts. First, I'm going to talk about science and society. And secondly, I'm going to be talking about a global empire. So science and society. So... I've already explained that Spratt gave the history of the Royal Society, and in the central third of his book, he reproduced some important reports, what he judged to be important reports on the Society's activities. And some of them were what we would very much think of being as scientific, like a telescope to look at the moon. But the ones that I've chosen to illustrate here are rather different, and they form the majority. And they're the sort of things that are based on utility. The Royal Spratt really wanted to show the Royal Society as being useful and bringing commercial benefit to the country. So at the top, so there was an account of how to make wine. Uh, there was a long discussion of different dyeing processes. Uh, this is the moon. And, and then another one about green oysters in Colchester, not the sort of thing we associate with the Royal Society very much. This frontispiece is a really famous image. Two historians, Michael Hunter and Jim Bennett, have written a whole book about this frontispiece. Um, and it's important because it follows the Renaissance tradition of condensing the whole message of a book into its frontispiece. So... In the centre, you can see there's the king. So it's George, uh, Charles II, um, founder and patron of the Royal Society. And you can see that the goddess of fame is putting a wreath on his head. This is the president, and he's pointing to this, emphasising how important Charles was. The basic idea of that, of course, is to flatter the king and hope that the king will give them some money. That didn't work very well. The king never did. And that's why the history of science is completely different in England from in France, because in France, the Paris Academy was absolutely supported by the king and later by the state. But it was in England, it wasn't. If you wanted to join the Royal Society, you had to pay a membership fee. So the person on the left is the first president, he was called William Brunker, and if you happen to want to work out what 4 over pi is, he's provided a very neat formula for you. The man on the right in the picture is by far the most important one, and that's Francis Bacon. You can see he's got his Lord Chancellor's purse and his ruff because he, he, was, he was dead by then. He was of an older generation. And on the bookcase on his left, they've got some of his books. And there's a poem at the beginning of the book by Abraham Cowley, and this pays tribute uh, to Bacon, and it uses religious imagery, and un unlike a modern scientific text, there's a lot about religion and about Christianity, to be more specific, in this book. 
So Bacon rescued the fellows from the wilderness, from these and all long errors of the way in which our wandering predecessors went. Bacon, like Moses, led us forth at last. And Bacon effectively became sort of like a patron saint of the Royal Society. And his name was constantly evoked for the next two or three centuries. And this notion of a Baconian method is still very important. So he was originally an MP while Elizabeth I was the Queen. And then when James I came to power, he was knighted and he became the Lord Chancellor. Uh, but then there were a lot of political scandals. So what's new? He was accused of corruption. What's new? And he lost his job. But it seems to have been part of a put-up job and he was the fall guy. And he went off into the country and continued the project that he'd already started to write a six-volume book called The Great Instauration. And the idea of that was that it would revolutionise how knowledge was established. He was particularly famous for the aphorism, knowledge is power. And he never actually said that in so many words, but the nearest he came to it was at the, the introduction, the prologue to The Great Instauration, which is almost the only bit he finished. And he, start, he started out by saying he wanted to revolutionise philosophical methods. He said, a way must be opened for the human understanding, entirely different from any hitherto unknown. So he wants to revolutionise knowledge, but he also wants power. In order that the mind may exercise over the nature of things, the authority which properly belongs to it. So he also wants control, not just knowledge, for its own sake. The only complete part that he published uh, was the new organon. And that was a, meant to be a substitute, a replacement for the old organon, which had been written by Aristotle, and which was still very much in use in the university. This, this is an edition from 1640. It was still absolutely on the syllabus in the universities, particularly at, at Oxford. Bacon's central argument in the new organ, organon was instead of relying on logic, and tradition, you should, philosophers should make observations of the natural world themselves, and they should build up their theories by induction. Rather than starting from premises, which might or might not be correct, you start from what you observe and you build your theory up by induction, the empirical method. You can see, in this is the frontispiece of the book, so it says Francis Bacon, uh, Verulamium at St Albans, and he was the Lord Chancellor. And you can see here, these are the pillars of Hercules. And again, like the other book, this is this frontispiece summarises the whole argument of the book, so it's worth paying a bit of attention to. So these are the pillars of Hercules, which mythologically stood um, between Spain and Africa at the Straits of Gibraltar. And he's shown these ships going backwards and forwards across the Atlantic. And the basic message is that if you travel across the Atlantic to new places, you're going to find new goods, new information, new, and conversely, you're going to be able to bring back um, lots of stuff. As, as well as discovering new lands, you're going to benefit your own country. And it's also, uh, sort of metaphorically, it because it means going out beyond the Mediterranean, 
he, he's saying you should have the courage to leave the safety of all the classical knowledge, the Greek and Roman knowledge of the classical world, which resides in the Mediterranean. So it, it's a sort of message that works on two levels. And this little, little tag at the bottom is a quotation from the book of Daniel. And it says, many will travel and knowledge will be increased. So, that's, so this emphasis on travel was very important for Bacon and also for the early Royal Society. Uh, a lot of Spratt's book is asking travellers or people around England to collect as much information as they can and send it back to London to be sort of digested and pro processed. So like all these early scientific texts, there was a significant religious component. And Robert Hooke put that very well in his own book, The Micrographia. Um, he explained that Bacon had taught in the New Organon and the Great Inspiration. Bacon taught that our minds and our senses are imperfect because of the fall in the Garden of Eden when Adam bit into the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He says, even the forces of our own minds conspire to betray us. Remedies can only proceed from the real, the mechanical, the experimental philosophy. So our minds are full of preconceptions and inherited ideas, what Bacon called the idols, and we've got to get rid of all of those and just go on what we can see. And Robert Hooke was extremely important in the early Royal Society. He was the Gresham Professor of Geometry. He was the curator of experiments at the Royal Society. So his task, basically, was to lay on experimental entertainers, entertainments every week for all these rich fellows who didn't really know very much but, but wanted to be amused at the meetings. I can't show you a picture of him, which is why I put a blank frame. And the story for why there isn't a picture of him, is that he and Newton were absolutely um, violent enemies. They each accused each other of plagiarism. And when Newton became president of the Royal Society, he decided that he was going to have uh, pictures of all the fellows put up in the hallways. So he was first, he got, he got his own picture there, and then he got everybody else's. And it's, apparently it was at this stage in the process that Robert Hooke's portrait disappeared, and one hasn't been found since. So Spratt's book is very, very Baconian, and he keeps emphasising the importance of the new uh, Baconian method of experiment, how revolutionary it is, and how different it is from the academic logical methods practised in the universities, because, of course, there wasn't a university in London. There was only one in Oxford and one in Cambridge. And he constantly justifies the Royal Society's activities by saying it won't harm religion, but it will be valuable for improving people's lives. And if you look at this frontispiece, you can see there's loads and loads of instruments all over it. And on the uh, bookshelf on the left, there's books, but the instruments are on top to show that instruments are superior. And we're very much used to thinking of scientific instruments, and that was a concept that a word, a term that didn't exist in the 17th century because instruments were growing, developing from previous artisanal practices. So there were three types of instruments, the mathematical, optical, and philosophical. 
and each of them are shown here, and I'm going to describe what, what they were. And they were each made in separate places, and they were each originally used for different reasons. So I'll start with mathematical instruments. Mathematical instruments were the sort that measure. They, they don't have any effect on the world about them, but they measure lengths or heights or time, and they're the sort of instruments that are used by navigators or surveyors or builders. So Robert Hooke... Uh, made a new kind of pendulum clock. It's, I've shown you where it is on the picture, um, and that's to measure time. A new kind of pendulum clock wherein the pendulum moves circularly, going with the most simple and natural motion, moving very equally, making no kind of noise. That's Spratt's description. Or another type of instrument that's shown there is these glass spiral thermometers. So these were the sort of mathematical instruments that Hooke and others were making at the Royal Society. The second category of instruments is optical instruments, and they were made, they originated in optician shops, people who made reading glasses um, and magnifying glasses. And unlike mathematical instruments, they don't just measure. What they do is reveal things that you couldn't see before. So microscopes reveal the very small, telescopes reveal the very, very large. And so in this picture, you can see here, that's the large telescope uh, that was uh, built at, at the observatory at Greenwich. Sorry, no, it wasn't at the observatory. It would later be in the observatory at Greenwich. And Hooke um, worked on all these types of instruments. He worked on telescopes and he worked on microscopes. So I'm going to show you some of the pictures that he produced. This is the last plate in Micrographia. And he's, he's boasting about, about the new telescope that he's just invented. And you can see at the top, here's his picture of a crater on the moon. And then he sort of writes in the text something like, well, I just happened to have a bit of space left on the paper, so I thought I'd show you what other people do. So that's what Hevelius um, does on the Baltic Sea, and that's what Riccioli does in Italian astronomy. So he's obviously pretty clear that his, his version's best. It's also very interesting that he always argues by analogy. This was a very famous, uh, very important way of arguing in the 18th century. So he, his, his, he said, we can, see, we can see this crater on the moon, and it's obviously got sort of dips and crevices and hills, just like on the Earth, and it's shaped like a pear, so... That suggests perhaps it's sort of fertile, and by the, by the time he's finished, he's imagined that it's got a little, what he calls a little grass coat growing on it, like the grass coat on Salisbury Plains. And he also speculates about gravity as well. But he's most famous for his, the pictures that he took with his microscope. So that was the last plate, and this is the first plate. So I'm going to leave you to think for a second what it might be. As the very first plate in the book. So the one at the top is a needle, and then there's a full stop, and then there's a razor. And the reason why he showed these three things is you can see how imperfect they are when you look at them under the microscope. And that was the point that he wanted to make, that these are all artificial uh, things made by human beings, and they can never be perfect. In contrast, when you look at God's world under the microscope, all we see is perfection. 
So I'm going to show you some of the, the, the pictures. Now this, this ant is my favorite. And the reason is because, as he said, it was so difficult to draw. So he took his ant and he put it under the microscope lens and unsurprisingly the ant ran away. So then he killed an ant, but that was no good because it got all sort of shriveled. So then, I don't know how he did this, he took an ant and he stuck its feet onto a piece of paper. But then it sort of twisted and contorted around, so that wasn't any good. So then he had the perfect solution. He got a spoonful of brandy and he got an ant and he put the ant in the brandy. So what you're actually seeing is an ant that's completely drunk and comatose. Um, the louse is um, a very interesting one. That sort of bar going across is one of Hook's own hairs. Of course, things like lice and fleas were much more prevalent then than they are now. And I just put this up as an example of how beautifully he writes, as, as well as drawing. Um, a louse is troubled as nothing so much as a man that scratches his head, as knowing that man is plotting and contriving some mischief against it. And ironically, he never worked out that fleas and lice were responsible for the plague. But then the most extraordinary picture, I think, this is the eyes of a fly. And he, 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 on the left, you can see, see these little sort of lenses all over it. But the really extraordinary thing is this blow-up on the right. And what he's done is each of these little sort of white squares, I'm not sure if you can see it, but they're white rectangles with a crossbar across them. And what they are is the, the reflections of the window in his room. It's an absolutely extraordinary picture. So the final, the third type of instruments are philosophical instruments, and they made, had to make new sorts of shops to create these philosophical instruments, and because nobody had ever used them before. So these were very, very much a product of the Royal Society. And you can see it here is the globe of an air pump right next to Charles's head. And this is Boyle and Hook's air pump. Um, at school, you might have seen experiments where there was a bell ringing inside a globe and then they sucked the air out and the bell stopped ringing or candles would have gone out. What they did in the 17th century was they would have put mice and rabbits inside and watched them dying as all the air came out. And unlike now, there was absolutely nothing controversial about that. What was controversial is that a vacuum is an artificial state of nature. It's what uh, Bacon called twisting the lion's tail. And his argument was that by creating something novel that doesn't exist, you can make inferences about what really does exist. And there was great... The controversy was about whether that was a valid way of proceeding. I think the air pump remained a very, very interesting instrument. And this is a picture I know you've all seen. It's about a century later by Joseph Wright of Derby. And you've got all the different reactions. Um, there's a cockatoo, a white cockatoo. There's a globe of an air pump. And the philosopher, the lecturer, has got his hand on the stopcock. So if he opens it, the air will come in and the bird will live. If he uh, keeps the stopcock closed, the bird will die. Well, there's this couple over here who just got engaged and they really couldn't care less what's happening to the bird in the stopcock. And here's the moon outside. Uh, but I think this is a very... It's pictures are marvellous, marvellously emblematic of that Baconian 
a maxim that knowledge is power. So the lecturer has the knowledge to create the, the vacuum and he has the power to decide whether the bird lives or whether it dies. So I'm going to go on now talking about the Royal Society as a global empire. And um, this is a much more unusual way of thinking about the Royal Society. And it's this aspect of it which is uh, very closely related to my own research. And it's a sort of different way of thinking about the Baconian aphorism, knowledge is power. So I've already shown you how Bacon emphasised the rewards of travel. Right? Science is often romanticised as the abstract pursuit of pure knowledge. But the development of the early royal society was intimately linked with English imperialism, commercial activities and involvement in the international slave trade. And what I've shown on the left are three illustrations uh, of reports uh, from Spratt. I showed you uh, three before about the wine and the dyeing processes. These are three others. The first one at the top is a map of uh, Batavia, what then was called Jakarta in the Dutch East Indies. And uh, Spratt solicited information from Jakarta about whether there's diamonds that are created there, about tortoises, about poisons and medicines and spices. This is all very useful commercial information. And then he included other um, information, that other papers that were relevant for foreign travellers. So in the middle, there's instructions for making gunpowder. And this is a report of climbing up a mountain in Tenerife. So this is what I'm going to talk about, this sort of different aspect of many will travel and knowledge will be in, um increased. If we go back to the frontispiece, one of the instruments that I didn't talk about, and if you, if you look at it for the first time, students always say, look, that's a gun. And it is indeed a gun, and Bacon sort of looks as though he's pointing at it with his left hand. And the society did carry out lots of experiments with guns, of the ballistics, the mathematics, of how the bullet travels, and um, testing different theories, and Brunker himself, the president, carried out experiments on recoil. But the interesting thing about this gun is that it isn't an experimental gun. It's, it's what's called a Kaltoff repeater, apparently. It's the only instrument in all, in all of this frontispiece, it's the only instrument that was for commercial sale. It was not experimental. It didn't belong to the Royal Society. It was there to impress the king and the patrons of the society. Guns were obviously a symbol of power, but they were also a unit of commercial exchange. They could be used as diplomatic gifts. Or in Africa, they, they were often used for buying captives and enslaving them. So the going rate was roughly one gun per African person to, to convert into a slave. The frontispiece also shows that sort of triangular um, clock. And this was designed by the Royal Society to measure longitude. Um, there was, in the 18th, 17th and 18th century, there was a lot of emphasis on finding means of measuring longitude. And that wasn't just um, abstract interest in measuring the globe. It was because longitude was needed for ships that were going on commercial voyages. 
And the Royal Society filed patent rights on this clock. And to test it, they didn't send out a scientific expedition. They sent it out to West Africa with the king's army uh, who were fighting the Dutch. So this, this wasn't an expedition. It was an armed warfare to seize territory and consolidate English trade in gold and in enslaved people. And then there's this part of Spratt's history that people very, very rarely comment on. So when he decides, describes the Royal Society's twin sister but was founded in the same year. The foundation of the Royal Company, to which as to the twin sister of the Royal Society, we have reason as we go along to wish all prosperity, and goes on in both these institutions begun together. The society that he was talking about, the other Royal Society, was the Royal Adventurers trading into Africa. So on the left, there's the arms of the Royal Society. Uh, this is the Royal Adventurers' arms. You can see it's got an elephant and a castle. That was quite an old symbol, but it became um, emblematic of this Royal Society. You can see the two heraldic supporters, a very fierce-looking African chieftains. Hardly anybody had ever been to Africa from England, and all the books and all the maps, they were all drawn by people who copied what other people said, and they didn't really know much about it. What they would have been, at this stage, very surprised to learn was that Africa was actually a very civilised, flourishing place. Uh, the West Coast was, at least. There were African rulers who were working in offices that were decorated with Dutch tapestries, Indian cloths, and silverware made from New, Eng New World ores. And there were a lot of small, independent kingdoms, and they traded with each other, but they also traded with India, Brazil, and Portugal. And that was all fine until towards the end of the 17th century, by the time the English and other European nations as well had been in there with guns, um, which obviously promoted internal warfare, but also they were purchasing a lot of the uh, local people, particularly the men, and shipping them across the Atlantic for the slave trade. And right from the very beginning, the Royal Society, as Spratt said, endorsed the activities of the Royal Adventurers trading into Africa. And there were also a lot of people, um, fellows of the Royal Society, were also themselves involved. They were directors of the other company. So there was considerable overlap between them. And Spratt went on, and both these institutions began together. Our king has initiated the two most famous works of the wisest of ancient kings. By that, he meant King Solomon who at the same time sent to Ophir for gold and composed a natural history from the cedar to the shrub. So the Royal Society was responsible for the natural history and then the Royal Adventurers was to go to Ophir to Africa for gold. The, uh, the Royal uh, um, Company of Adventurers had um, a new charter in 1663. And this is what its charter allowed it to do. It gave it a monopoly on people as well as material goods. So the king gave his royal charter, it's a bit like um, the only real surviving example of companies with a royal charter is the BBC, which is a sort of combined sort of public-private enterprise and there's a charter that's renewed every, every few years. And so the Royal Society and the Royal Company of Adventurers Trading into Africa, they were early examples of this new type of public-private enterprise. So the king said that the 
traders into Africa should forever after use and enjoy all mines of gold and silver which are to be found, and the whole entire and only trade for the buying and selling, bartering and exchanging of, for or with, with any Negroes, slaves, goods, wares and merchandises whatsoever to be vented or found at within any of the cities. So all the Europeans, including the English, felt free to come in, grab bits of Africa and take all the people, the gold and the other resources that they could find. So this is a map that was produced um, in the early 18th century. It's a new map. It was published by the Royal Society on the basis of their measurements in Africa. And you can see it. The, um, you see here's, here's Isaac Newton, it's giving his blessing to it. And you can see this uh, cartouche at the bottom. It's a fictionalized version of Africa. I don't know if you can see, but there's sort of exotic animals. There's a very fierce, half-naked-looking man. And then there's this cornucopia pouring out gold and spices and other products. But maps are usually seen as a product of scientific exploration. But like most maps at the time of the continents, there were lots and lots and lots and lots of things labelled around the coasts, because that's where people landed. The in, inside was very schematically labelled, and you can't, can't really see on this map, but it's, it's the parts inside aren't labelled according to the people that, who live there, they're labelled according to the products that people, European people can take. So along this bit, You've got the Gold Coast, the Slave Coast, the Grain Coast, the Ivory Coast. So it's, it's all based on material goods. And all these um, little places around the edge, they're all mostly where European forts were based. And England's main fort was this one. It was called Cape Coast Castle and it was on the coast of Guinea. It was opened originally as a Swedish uh, trading company, then it was taken over by the Danish, and then it was taken over by the Dutch, and then in the wars between Holland and England, uh, England captured it, and it remained under the power of the English. And it looks like a very, very strong fortified castle. It's actually not. It's, the, it's fairly sort of flimsy. The top, all this top story has got very nice apartments for all the people who work there. There are lots and lots of Europeans who work there. The real point of this is underneath, there's a very, very large dungeon which holds about a 1,000 people, and that's where all the African captives were put before they went out of what's called the door of no return, and they were shipped across the Atlantic Ocean. And I mentioned earlier that symbol of the elephant and castle. So you can see here it's on an ivory tusk that's been shipped back uh, to Britain. And this is a, a guinea. The, uh, the coin is called a guinea after um, Guinea in Africa. And so this is James II. And you can see the elephant and castle here. And this elephant and castle, or else the initials DOY for the Duke of York, James II, was branded on people as well. But I didn't want to show you a picture of that. You just have to imagine that. And so in 1665, you can see that a quarter of the company's revenue arose from trading in people. 
So as well as an overlap in personnel between the directors of the, the fellows of the Royal Society and the directors of this company, uh, the Royal Society also used sort of networks, the trading network around the world, and particularly in Africa, to gather information. So, for example, Isaac Newton, when he was uh, correcting Principia, and he wanted to collect measurements of the tides, so he had a lot of correspondence with people who were belong to the East India Company or the Royal African Company, and who were based out in Africa and different places around the world. So by gathering information in this way, it's clear that imperial possession, commercial expansion, and scientific research were closely linked. And I just chose one example, uh, because it's from 1667 by uh, Abraham Hill. And it's a questionnaire that he gave to all the travellers that were going out to Guinea. And some of them you might think of as sort of scientific questions, like, uh, for instance, the last one, number nine at the bottom, is, um, is, is <coughs> sorry, <coughs> is it true that Africans get worms from drinking polluted water? But several of the other questions are very clearly commercial, so that this one, for instance, number three, is whether the gold there be of very different fineness and that which is uppermost in the mine be the finest. And then and the, next, the next question, number four, is about um, palm, whether the palm affords them wine, oil, vinegar, soap and bread, and out of the leaves they pick threads, making thereof very curious work. So in a sense it's an anthropological question, but it's, it's also very much a question with the, um, England's financial benefit in mind. That same year, 1667, there was a group of merchants presented a petition to Parliament and they were very angry, and they were arguing that the monarch's powers should be reduced because the Royal Society's twin sister, the Company of Royal Adventurers Trading into Africa, held a monopoly over the, over the, um, the gold and the people that were being shipped across the Atlantic. And what these merchants argued was that this was pushing up the price of enslaved people, so the plantation owners were suffering because they were having to pay far too much money to buy... Um, to buy um, enslaved peoples. And this is how they put it. Formerly, there's all, all, always been a freedom of trade for all his majesty's subjects, for Negroes on the whole coast of Guinea, by reason whereof the said plantations in the Americas have been plentifully supplied with Negroes of the best sort, and at an indifferent, indifferent rate, so cheap, to the great increase of the said plantations and the advantage and profit of this crown and nation. So they were arguing that this royal monopoly should be removed. And then this was finally consolidated in 1666 after the Glorious Revolution. So you've got this sort of rather paradoxical, ironic situation that being English and being free and having liberty means that you've got the liberty to trade in people who are enslaved, that every, all free British people should have that right, not just the monarch. So I'll finish with um, a, a quotation from Sprite's history, so illustrating what the fledgling Royal Society aimed to bequeath to us, to the, to the future. This is what they aimed. English gentlemen are to know that traffic and commerce have given mankind a higher degree than any title of nobility, even that of civility and humanity itself. 
In those coasts whither the greatest trade shall constantly flow, the greatest riches and power will be established. So this is a very Baconian sermon that clergyman Spratt was preaching. So, but that was what the Royal Society was aspiring towards in 1667, when it was by no means clear that it would become the very prestigious scientific organisation that it is today. So I'll stop there, and if anybody would like to ask me questions, I will try to answer them. <laughs>